I too would like to welcome everyone here today. I will begin with a reading from Whispers from Eternity. Intoxicate me with the wine of thy love. Intoxicate me with devotion's wine. I will drink of thee until death. My earthly desires are now dead, and I will live in thee forever. A thrilling current runs through every cell of my body and and through every opening of my love for thee. Saturated with devotion, I will enter the heaven of thy presence. Groping blindly, the urge of my devotion suddenly flings open the secret door in my soul. Oh, what bliss I feel on beholding thy light. The last sentence of this um, reading, Oh, what bliss I feel at beholding thy light, reminds me of um, several years ago, driving through the, on the 405 in Los Angeles, which is filled with lots of traffic, as well as lots of billboards that say traffic lawyers, um, because there's a lot of accidents. And then all of a sudden, there was a, a big billboard of Swami Kriyananda, and it said, the goal of life is bliss. Our topic today is the redeeming light. Normally, when we think of light, we think of a light bulb. We think of the sun, the sunlight. When we see those lights and they're more inspiring, we might think of a sunset or a sunrise. When I was a child, I would go to the greeting card store called Hallmark with my family, my mother, and she would take us and, or, and she would take us to just look around, and I always was drawn to these posters that had an inspirational quote on them, and I don't remember anything that the quote said, but I just remember the picture. And there were normally pictures of light streaming through clouds or uh, you know, like a forest in this soft light. We all know the feeling of you know, maybe being in a park or in a forest, and there's that that light that comes through the trees and it's calm and it just, it almost is like a hint of the divine. And so the light that we're speaking of today is that light which is a divine manifestation. In the beginning in the Bible it said God's first commandment was let there be light. Yogananda said that this light is the structural essential of creation. So let's think of this building. We take the structure away, what would happen? If we take light out of creation, what would happen? The light is in everything. It's in the trees, it's in the birds, it's in us. But yet we might say, well, where is that light? Okay, light is everywhere. I believe it with my mind. But when we're going through our challenges, when our body is giving us issues, we say, well, where is the light? And Yogananda said, the light is just behind the dancing atoms. In the autobiography of a yogi, in the chapter, The Law of Miracles, Yogananda goes into a movie theater, and he goes in and he watches the newsreels of World War I, and he just sees these images, these horrific images of the fighting that's going on at the moment. And um, he comes out of that, watching those, and his heart is really disturbed, and he says, Divine Mother, why is there so much pain and suffering? And this is what was said. Creation is light and shadow both. 
else no other picture is possible. The good and evil of Maya must ever alternate in supremacy. If joy were ceaseless here in the world, would man ever seek another? Without suffering, he scarcely cares to recall that he has forsaken his eternal home. Pain is a prod to remembrance. One's values are profoundly changed when he is finally convinced that creation is only a vast motion picture and that not in it, but beyond it, lies his own reality. So one of the images that Yogananda has often given again and again is the vast motion picture. You were in a movie theater, you just see all these images, it seems so real, but if you look back, you see it comes from a beam of light. And so that's what we need to do. We need to look back to that light. Because the motion picture looks so real, and the times we're going through our troubles and our sufferings, it seems so real. And let's face it, it is when we're going through it. But if this glass of water, if I was to put an ice cube in it, and I was to say, what's in it? You say, water and an ice cube. But we know that they're essentially made of the same substance. And once that ice cube melts, it's just one. And so when we can melt, you might say, back into the Lord's presence, that's when we realize and can see that everything is light. So how do we begin to feel and experience that we are light? Well, if you're in a room that's dark, what do you do? You flip up the switch of the light. What happens? Energy goes to the light bulb and it's illuminated. If the light is attached to a dimmer, if you put up just dimmer just a little bit, just a little bit of light comes out. The more you turn up the dimmer, the more light can flood the room. And so the dimmer is our will. You know, one of the sayings that we hear again and again is the greater the will, the greater the flow of energy. And the greater the flow of energy, the greater the light that can come into our lives. Now, we hear that again and again. One time in a, a talk, Yogananda said, right before he was about to tell a story, I might have told this a thousand times. Well, why would he have to tell it a thousand times? Because it's something he wants to get into our consciousness of why it's important. So if we want to bring in the light, we have to, we have to mean it. We have to really put our energy into that. And then, and this is why the energization exercises are so important. Remember, Yogananda said that these exercises are his unique contribution to the science of yoga. And they're unique because we're able to, in this day and age, we're able to understand them and in a way that couldn't have been understood earlier in history. And so we know that in the very general way, basic way, in which energization is taught, is that we're trying to recharge the body battery with cosmic energy. Right? Okay. So, but what is happening on a deeper level? Master said that when we energize our cells, each cell a ring of electrical vital energy surrounds those cells and turns the cells into undying soul. Imagine that. You turn our cells into undying soul and then you go to sit to concentrate. And it's like that energy of our who we really are is vibrating with consciousness. And then what do we do? We sit down to concentrate. And then we need to do, as Master said, still thought, and still breath, because we are, will not be able to see 
light unless we still thought in breath. Master, a beautiful saying, is said, when I calmed these two natural tumults of thought and breath, creation dissolved into the lucent sea, and I melted into unity. And that's what we're going for here. So, while light is all around us in creation, we must experience it and see and feel that light within us. There was an event that happened in 1920 that it's not talked about a lot, maybe in the history of Yogananda and this path of self-realization, but I found it to be a, a significant story in this path. And so it was only three months about after Yogananda first came to America. He came to America in 1920, September 19th on the ship, the city of Sparta. And when he came here, it was just three months later, there was, uh, he was, a speak, I think he was speaking at a Unitarian church. And he met a lady there, and this lady had a friend, and her, his, her friend's name was Dr. Lewis. And she said, Doctor, you have to meet this man. And so Dr. Lewis was skeptical. He was um, taught by his family to um, kind of, you know, be suspicious of these teachers. But he was somebody who was sincere. He was desperate. He had a lot of questions about the scriptures. And so he goes to where Yogananda was staying. It was called Unity House. And he says to Yogananda, in the Bible it says, if thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Can you explain this to me? And Yogananda says, I think I can. And then he said, can you show it to me? And Yogananda has Dr. Lewis sit on a tiger skin on the floor, and Yogananda is across from him, and he touches him at the spiritual eye, and he instantly sees the spiritual eye and the thousand-petaled lotus. And I think of this as being significant because part of Yogananda's mission was to bring the interpretation of the scriptures to show the teachings of Christ that, as he said, have been lost and forgotten, and to give the original interpretation of Christ's words that we can now have a better understanding of because we're in this, this yuga. Because in the time of Christ, it was in Kali Yuga, and there wasn't this understanding of energy in such a way that it couldn't be as profoundly put out there, you might say. There's a... Um, a joke that my dad likes to tell me um, again and again. And he says, uh, why do they call the Middle Ages the Dark Ages? Because they had so many nights. <laughs> so that was the time of uh, a night skies of consciousness, you might say. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. It's, it's helpful. You know, I might have told that a thousand times. <laughs> But now, because we're in this age of Dwapara Yuga and we have a better understanding of energy, um, we're able to uh, take the techniques that Yogananda gave us and really apply them to our lives. But going back to what I was saying about, I felt like this time when Dr. Lewis was with Master for the first time was significant because Yogananda came to bring the interpretation of the scriptures, a new interpretation. And that's what that first question that Dr. Lewis had. He, and he tells them, he explains it. But he gives them an experience of it. That's what the guru does. 
And then, whether it be at that point or at another point, of course, he gave him the techniques where he could practice it and experience it more regularly. So, why do these miracles happen in this? You know, we, there's hundreds of miracles in the Bible and other scriptures. Um, we hear of miracles in the news recently. There was this um, sister nun that was, um, her body was brought up and they found that she was completely incorrupt, completely after four years. You know, why does that happen? Why does Mukunda, when he was a young boy with Asiatic cholera and he's about to die, the light comes and heals him? Well, as it says in the autobiography of a yogi in the beginning, except ye see signs and wonders, you will not believe. We need these miraculous events to take us out of our rational mind that this is the way life is, right? Um, there is, um, in 1917, something uh, miraculous happened. It was called the miracle of the sun. And in 1916... Uh, Mother Mary came to these three children in Fatima, Portugal. And Mother Mary appeared to the children three times. The children said that she was more beautiful and brilliant than the sun. She just wore this white gown and she was just radiating light. And so Mother Mary appeared to these children six times and gave some prophecies, she told people they needed to pray, say the rosary. And of course, uh, word got around, and there were those who believed and those who were skeptics. And then eventually, um, the Divine Mother said, I'm going to perform a miracle on October 13, 1917. So as you can imagine, people were anticipating what was, going to, what was going to or not going to happen. So, in this field in Fatima, on October 13, 1917, estimates of approximately 70,000 people came to see what was going to happen. It was raining that day. There was clouds in the sky. People were looking up. There were reporters. There were people who had cameras. There were scientists there. And then all of a sudden, the clouds broke and the sun started spinning and dancing in the sky. And it started radiating these various color lights. It came to the earth. It started careening towards the earth and then going back into its place. And this was witnessed by thousands of people, but not everybody saw it, of course. They said that the scientists did not detect anything abnormal that day. (laughs) Well. So I um, had a chance to go to Fatima recently. Uh, It wasn't planned. My wife and I were traveling in Europe a few weeks ago, and we were in Milan about to fly back to America, and the plane was canceled because of a strike. And so we had a 24-hour delay in Milan, and then they gave us they flew us to Lisbon for another 24-hour delay. And so that was a perfect opportunity to go to Fatima. And so when I asked the question, what is the purpose of these miracles? Well, when I was in Fatima, I understood the purpose of these miracles. 
Not everybody's seen that outward miracle of the sun. Not everyone might see the light of God's presence that's here all the time. But what was the greatest miracle, I believe, was what was not, was not what was seen, but what was unseen. And it was the devotion and the faith that was awakened in those pilgrims who had witnessed that event. Over four million people go to Fatima every year. So imagine that devotion and that power of faith. And when we went there, you could feel it. It was one of the more profound experiences of my life to feel that, to see and feel that devotion. Master said that we need, you can only go to God through love. And God has everything, but he hasn't our love. And he hasn't our love unless we give it to him. Techniques are wonderful. A lot of people want the technique of Kriya Yoga because they hear it's going to do all these wonderful things. But it's just a technique. We must combine that technique with that pure, loving, inward and upward aspirations of our hearts. I was thinking about this story of Mukunda when he was healed by um, that picture of Lahiri Mahashaya and the light coming through. But what did his mother say just before that light came through? She said, if you really show your devotion and inwardly bow to him, your life will be saved. So we must ask ourselves, are we really showing our devotion to the Guru, to God, to whatever our path is? And then from that devotion, it's almost like it's like a magnet that can just draw God's grace into our lives. But that devotion is essential. Another story I have, I'll end with this story. It also has to do with a plane. Um, about a year ago, I was on a flight back from seeing my family in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I've flown a lot around the world. I've been to 23 different countries. And um, I've always had a fine time on planes. But for whatever reason, th during this flight, um, it wasn't so fine. There was the, the, uh, the pilot said at the beginning, of the flight, there's gonna be some turbulence for about an hour, it's only gonna be very mild turbulence. But then he said, then it's gonna really pick up. <laughs> so, you know, usually pilots don't kind of tell you like it's, he, had a, he kind of had an energy in his voice, like, like brace yourselves, you know? And so the moment he said for the first hour there's gonna be a little bit of turbulence, my anxiety got really high. Um, my fear level on a scale of 1 to 10 was hovering around 8 or 9. I, I, I could barely breathe. Um, the, the fear was just so strong. So luckily, you know, we practice these techniques. And, you know, we need to practice things when it's easier. So when these times come, we can have them. And so I'm starting to practice all these different techniques, watching my breath. Nothing happened. Okay, I'm surrounding the, um, I'm doing Om Tat Sat, surrounding the plane in light. Nothing. <laughs> I start, I even imagine Yogananda's piloting the plane with a little hat on. <laughs> Nothing. 
And so, you know, an hour, about an hour had passed. I look at my watch and again, I mean, when I say the turbulence was mild, it was like a little bit. It was nothing. It was something we, but for whatever reason, it was big for me. And so about, you know, eventually the pilot said, okay, everybody, um, we just got through the mild turbulence. So here comes more. So if you're out of your seat, sit down. And so at that moment, I'm like, gosh, I prayed desperately. I really prayed. And I said, Master, please, what do I do here? And a story popped in my mind. And it was a story of when uh, a devotee came to Swami Kriyananda who would go to work and she had to go on this bus. And she went on this bus and she was afraid. It went through a part of the town that was challenging and there's people on the bus that caused her some fear. And so Swamiji said, well, can you find another way to get there? And she says, no, I have to take the bus. And he said, well, then choose one person on that bus to pray for. And so she said she did, and that became the best part of her day. So I immediately, this story just popped in my head. I immediately started praying for somebody. Instantly, my pain went, my fear went away. And instantly, the, the plane started getting turbulent. And then I started laughing out loud because the, the plane is going pretty good, actually. And I, it was just completely gone. And that's the grace of God's presence. You know, Swamiji said that, you know, now we live in a time where the main war, the main battle is between light and darkness. And our greatest weapon in this time is being channels of that light. And that is what we're here to do. As the great naturalist John Muir said, I live only to entice people to look at nature's loveliness. My own special self is nothing. I want to be like a flake of glass through which light can pass. May we, through our devotion, through our practice, for our sincerity to bring goodness and love into this world, be a channel of that light. God bless you. Lift your hearts up to the Lord. Oh